we learn that hating evil, hating klipa, hating the unholiness in a genuine way only can come as a result of attaining a certain kind of love, right? This love is a ecstatic love and divine bliss, which is akin to the world to come. Um, if you have that kind of experience, what does that do? It causes you to hate anything ungodly because it's ungodly. Okay, so I want to just review quickly something that we mentioned in chapter 10, which is uh, um, relevant here. There are two ways you can um, hate something or be disgusted by something or in general have negative feelings towards something. One is because it has unpleasant consequences. The other is because it itself is unpleasant. Um, I, I was in class in the men's program today and um, I asked for an example of something that you thought you wanted but later on realized that you don't really want. And a student brought an example that he, on Pesach, he thought he wanted to eat the fleshik, the meat things that were being served in the, in the morning. And then he realized that now he can't have anything dairy the rest of the day. And so he realized he didn't really want that. Mm. And I said, I don't think that's a good example because it, it, your problem is not that you didn't want the meat. It's just you didn't want the consequence that came afterwards of not being able to eat dairy. Right? If, if, if there was like some, some dispensation to be able to eat dairy directly after meat, you'd be fine with having the meat, right? Some of you have an issue with the meat. Right. You know the two greatest um, fears that every Orthodox Jew has? Yes. Meat and, and bread. bread. It's like you're sitting there like, do I really want to wash? I used to read these books about these kids who are that's what it was last night. I'm like, there's this wonderful bread. I want to eat it. It's really tasty bread. But like, I don't know, washing and benching, so much work. Not worth it. You know, our ancestors, they had to like, you know, keep mitzvahs in communist Russia, Holocaust, under, under the Moroccan pers persecution, the Moroccan kings or who knows what. Right? We... We have to wash for bread. <laughs> All right. So, now, if you, so the idea is that if you love, you hate. I mean, this is something we spoke about previously, that if you love, you hate. Because hatred is, and hatred maybe is a harsh word, but we're going to group all feelings of of disdain, dislike, disapproval, rejecting under the broad category of hate, like all feelings of attraction um, under the broad category of love. If you love, you hate. Because when, when you love something which is in opposition, something that goes against what you love, you then feel hate towards that, right? So the obvious example, I love somebody, somebody else hurt the person I love, I hate the person who hurt them, right? Make sense? Okay. Can a non-Sadiq hate the klipa, hate the unholiness? No. So here it says no, right? But by that logic, then he doesn't really love God, right? Because if you love, you hate. See what I'm saying? Like if, you, if, if I love Hashem, and this is ungodly, then I should hate it. 
And if I can't bring, bring, genuinely bring myself to hate it, it must mean that I don't really love Hashem, right? So the non-Sadiq doesn't love Hashem. That can't be because we said the non-Sadiq, right, can be a Baini. And the Baini's entire reason for not sinning is because of their big, great, intrinsic love for Hashem, right? So there seems to be something inconsistent. If you love Hashem enough that no matter what you're feeling, you're able to overcome it in order to not disconnect yourself from Hashem, then you must be able to hate evil because love and hate go together. And if we're saying only a tzaddik can hate evil, then why are we saying that someone who's not a tzaddik can serve Hashem motivated by an awareness of how much deep down they love Hashem? There's something inconsistent. So the thing is like this. Can you say over time what's inconsistent about this person? Not about a person, about our understanding. If, if love implies hate, if you love, then you also hate. Okay? Then it's inconsistent to say that a bainani serves Hashem and overcomes whatever challenge he has because they, are, they know that deep down they love Hashem. And to say that only a tzaddik hates evil. Like, if, if the bainani can love Hashem, then he should hate evil. And if only a tzaddik hates evil, then only a tzaddik, only a tzaddik loves Hashem. Like, you can't keep all three of those statements as true and expect to be consistent. You can't say, love implies hate, the bainani loves Hashem, only the tzaddik hates evil. Something has to give. Something has to... If the tzaddik is the only one who hates evil, then he's the only one who loves Hashem. If the bainani loves Hashem, then he should also hate evil. Or maybe all love doesn't imply hate. Something has to, something has to break in that. Those three things are not all consistent. Can there be degrees of this? Well, what I want to do is not degrees, because degrees is not going to really solve it, because what I want to do is to... There's kinds of love and kinds of hate. Make it a qualitative issue than a quantitative issue. Yeah. Didn't we say that the Bainani serves Hashem because they're um, afraid of the separation that sin will cause between mm-hmm. Hashem and Hashem? That's mm-hmm. not really love. No, but why are they afraid of the separation? Then we're going to say, why are they afraid of being separated from Hashem? Why are they afraid of being separated from Hashem? Because they have a love for Hashem. They love Hashem the way a person loves their life. And the idea of being separated, if we were to, if we were to, right, I don't, the main is, I don't want to be separated. Why don't I want to be separated? Because I know that deep down, I really love Hashem. I don't want to flesh that out too much now because we did that er- earlier. What does the Bainini find distasteful about things that are ungodly? They disconnect from Hashem. If he could get a special workaround that wouldn't disconnect it from Hashem, would it, it would bother him? It. No. What does the tzaddik find distasteful about things that are ungodly? Itself. itself, that they're ungodly, right? So different, in other words, because the, the Bainese of love is I love Hashem, meaning I, I, I want to be close to Him, right? The thing I hate about the things that are ungodly is not their ungodliness, but how they prevent me from being close to Him. But what the tzaddik's love is this kind of bliss, right? This bliss of actually experiencing godliness, like being in Gan Eden. And once you had that taste, that experience, the bliss of, the, of, 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 of what the divine really is like, at that point, anything ungodly is just disgusting. Um, I'm going to give you an analogy, although this analogy is not a positive analogy. It's a negative analogy, but it illustrates the point. Okay? Um, if somebody learns to appreciate 
the taste of um, fine wine. They, fi- they will then find it difficult to drink not such fine wine. They'll, f- they'll, ha- they'll find it the regular, you know, regular wine that's served for Kiddush that's like 25 shekels, 30 shekels a bottle. They're not gonna, they will have to drink my Kiddush, but like they're not gonna be able to. Why? Right. Um, Hasidim, by the way, have a tradition that that's a bad thing to develop that kind of a sophisticated taste for things for a very simple reason. Right? If you don't have a sophisticated taste, right, and there's like, you know, regular basic wine for kiddush, you make kiddush, you're fine, right? But if you have a sophisticated taste, now what happens? you spend a lot of mental and emotional energy around the wine. And that mental and emotional energy is not cheap, it's not free, right? That mental and emotional energy is coming at the expense of mental and emotional energy that can be invested. Where? What? Torah. Torah. What else? Making Kiddush, for instance, like the actual content of the Kiddush, right? Right? Making your guests feel welcome, right? There's all sorts of other uses of our mental, emotional energy, right? All sorts of godly uses. Torah study, mitzvah performance, obviously Israel, right? And we, we don't have an infinite supply of it. Right? And so there is an idea, and this is not meant as a criticism, just for a person to be aware of themselves, is that cultivating a certain kind of a sensitivity to some higher, more refined physical aspect of our existence can end up it's like, a, it's like a virus on a computer just ends up using a lot of processing power so your computer runs slower. It does the same thing to us in life. The more picky or finicky, the more I have an appreciation for the fineness of X, Y, or Z, it actually has a cost. Now, this doesn't mean one person should berate themselves over it. I mean, we are who we are, and Hashem made different people in different ways, and people grew up in different kinds of cultures. And um, you know, If you grow up in a, in a more affluent society, you'll have a more sense, uh, you'll be more accustomed to a certain level of of physical comfort and pleasure, things like that. And it is what it is. It's not meant something, it's not a sin to one should berate themselves over. But at the same time, one should realize that, you know, how do my choices, you know, am I, am I leading myself to like, be the kind of person that I can't start my day unless I have a freshly brewed espresso from a particular, you know, coffee shop, or I can just have, you know, regular cheap instant coffee. Like, which direction I'm moving myself in my life, right? In my taste of clothes, in my taste of dwelling. Not that it's a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with these things, right? I'm going to make them forbidden. But because once a person has developed a, 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 an appreciation of something, it alters their experience of other things in comparison, right? So, for instance, if you're a wine taster and you want to taste wine, you have a problem because when you taste the wine and then you taste the next wine, the first wine, becomes the point of reference for tasting the second wine. So you don't taste the second wine for, on its own terms. So what do you do to solve that problem? You put something in your mouth after? That's right. Yeah. They, you, know, you, you do something to cleanse the palate. Um, I've never been to a wine tasting show, but I've heard that they use coffee. But I could be right or could be wrong. I don't know. I was never there. Um, and it's the same thing, you know, if you, want to, if you want to leave this world and go experience the bliss in the next world, there has to be kind of a cleansing of the palate. Cleansing of your sense of things. You're, oh, that's what real bliss is like. Well, now, you know, the physical world doesn't really have anything to offer. It's just like chewing on cardboard. Nobody would want to do that. 
But that's, that all comes because of the experience of the tainug, the pleasure, the bliss of, of a direct experience of godliness like in Gan Eden. If, if all you're feeling is the desire for closeness to Hashem, right, or the sense that Hashem is important to me, then the only thing you can dislike about Klippa is how it's an obstacle. But it still has its appeal. Right? So it's very clear. We're not saying here that the, 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 the non-Sadiq, the Baini, can't hate evil. They can hate evil. But they don't hate evil itself. They don't hate the ungodliness itself. What they hate is, as you put, how it creates an obstacle in me getting closer to Hashem. Whereas the Tzaddik, by virtue of their experience of a love, of a love that has this, what's called the Ava the love that has a sense of bliss, the sense of, of delight, of actually experiencing what godliness is really like, it alters their experience that even their animal soul can no longer really find anything pleasurable in anything other than godliness. It just seems disgusting and empty and sickening and revolting and nobody would want such a thing. Okay? So it's very important that, again, we don't, we don't take the idea that, oh, if you're not a tzaddik, you can't, then you can't have this. There's a very specific thing that you can't have if you're not a tzaddik, which is being disgusted by evil because it's evil. So let's make this concrete, because up till now we... There are sins. Yes? There's things that are sins. Okay. There's a, there's a, a saying that one time there was a, a, a Jew who spent his whole life studying Torah and locked in the base medrash, didn't know anything about this world. And he said, you know, how do I know that really I'm going the right path? Maybe, maybe the world really is a wonderful place. All the temptations are, you know. I haven't really, I haven't really tried both sides of the story. How do I know, right? So you know what, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go do a sin and see what it's like. And then I'll be able to tell if it's really worth it or not. So one of the sins, in the, there are serious sins in the Torah. There's minor sins and serious sins. How do you know it's a minor sin? How do you know it's a serious sin? Based on the punishment. Based on the punishment. So serious sins carry the punishment of kares. The soul gets cut off. Minor sins don't carry that punishment. So one of the, one of the major sins is eating the forbidden fats of a cow. Cow, there's certain fats in the cow, forbidden to eat. And if you eat them, punishment is kares. It's a very serious sin. Conversely, eating pork, so considered a minor sin. There's no kares with pork. Um, now, back in the day, the candles were made out of um, animal fat. You take the forbidden fart of the cow, that fat was actually very good for making candles. So that's to make the candles. So this Jew decides, you know what? Serious sin, eating the forbidden fat called chaylef. So he goes over to, to, the, to the candlesticks. He takes the candle. He bites into the candle. He's like, Ugh! You know what? The books are right. There's nothing in this world that's worth having. <laughs> right? but, but in real life, sin is pleasurable. Sin is appealing. There are sages say, A person never sins unless they get something out of it. We don't sin altruistically. What is that? The first lay is with an aleph. A man does not sin and there's not for him. He doesn't get anything out of it. You know, If there wasn't appeal, <laughs> then people wouldn't do it. Yeah, no, no, one, no one is sinning out of some sort of like altruistic motivation to like service the forces of evil. It's not why people do it. Where is that line from? It's a Gemara somewhere. 
I would, you want me to tell you the trick for finding finding a line in Gemara if you know if you know what the Gemara says but you don't remember where it is? Mm-hmm. Go into Google. Google type type it type the line in the Gemara. It will give yes. you the page where the yeah. Gemara is. Well, what's the, what is this connection to what you were saying? So, if you are if you are a God fearing person, you deeply deeply want to be connected to God. You love God. You're devoted to working in and closer to God. Do you enjoy sinning? Yes. Yes. This is very important. Like, like you have to go, yes, I enjoy sinning. I don't feel good about it afterwards, but yes, I enjoy sinning. In other words, wanting a closer connection to Hashem and enjoying sinning is not a contradiction. Not a contradiction. Right? One is what is important to me and what I'm driven towards and what matters to me and what I truly desire. And one is something that it does feel good. I do enjoy it. What's the issue? The issue is what the result of sinning is, get, is getting separation from Hashem, which is not something I'm willing, the price I'm willing to pay. And therefore, I won't sin. Moreover, I actually can develop some very negative feelings towards the sin. Why? One thing, if the sin separates from Hashem and was unappealing like the, like the wax candle, right? You, you bite into the candle, it's nothing enjoyable, you're never going to do it again, right? The problem with sin is, on the one hand, it separates me from Hashem, on the other hand, it tastes so good. Sins feel great when you're doing them. And so how do you feel about things which are bad for you but are very tempting? When you realize both of those things, do you feel positive about those parts of your life, those, a- those aspects of reality, or tend to feel negative towards them? In the moment, good. Now, overall, overall. Like a person, they, they know this is bad for them, and, but it's tempting and therefore it's a struggle. Would they rather that thing stay in their life or would they rather get rid of it? So I can enjoy something and hate it. But notice what I'm enjoying is it and what I'm hating is the consequences. So is that not a bainani? That's a bainani. Okay. A bainani can feel that way. So a bainani can hate evil. A bainani can hate the Yetzirah. A bainani can hate the forces of evil. But at the same time they hate it, they enjoy it. In fact, the fact that they enjoy it actually means that that's what makes it so dis- hateful to them. Right? If, if, the, if, 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 you know, it's like, use this as an analogy. There used to be something that cigarette companies used to do a lot of advertising before it was made illegal in most countries. And their advertisements were very clever. Um, now, if you knew that smoking was bad for you, and smoking had harmed you, or harmed who you loved, right? How would you feel about the cigarette companies advertising with clever marketing? What? Very upsetting. Now, it's very upsetting. Now, if the, if, the, if the ad was even more cute and more clever and more stuck in your mind, you would hate it more or you hate it less? More. More, because it's more dangerous, right? It's appeal. Is the, <laughs> that's what, right? If, if it's bad, you know, so, this will kill you. It's not enjoyable. Like, okay, thank you for telling me. Like, <laughs> like, I, won't, I won't do it. Right, so there's an element of deceit in it. And so the thing is, the Baini can develop actually this deep loathing for Klippa, this deep loathing for the Yetzirah because of how deceitful it is, how tricky it is, how difficult it is to overcome it, right? How sly it is. But they're never, but what they're, again, they're always, the hatred is because of the consequences and how difficult it is to avoid those consequences. They're not actually hating the ungodly thing in and of itself, they actually find that appealing. That's what actually makes it strangely so hateful. That tzaddik looks at the ungodly thing and just finds that 
despicable, and repulsive. If someone were to give you, right? and so it's like, you know, there's hating the advertising, right, for the cigarettes, and there's hating, like, someone gives you a plate of, like, spoiled food in front of you. Like, that, you're just repulsed by, like, why, like, why are you giving this to me? This is disgusting. Get away from me. And that kind of hate you can only have if you've experienced the bliss of closeness to Hashem, of the Ava Batainuke. And that kind of a love, only it's Adikas. So it's not how much you love Hashem, it's the kind of love, and the kind of love creates a different kind of hate. Okay. And so one of the key takeaways from this is, and, and the altar was actually going to flesh this out later on in another chapter more at length, is that and I think sometimes, sometimes in, uh, in this class, I, I, I talk about general things, and sometimes I talk about things that are very specific to Chabad, and we're left learning Tanya. So there is something about the kind of Chabad outlook, which I wouldn't say is absolutely unique to Chabad, but certainly the the full embrace of it is very unique to Chabad, which is that having a deep desire to be close to Hashem, that's the most important thing to you, in no way means you don't enjoy the most despicable sins in the world. Like those two things do not have to, like one does not come at the expense of the other. Because we very often have this kind of almost halo effect in the sense that the person who's more devoted to Hashem clearly is more above being debased and, and enjoying crass and disgusting and despicable things. Right? We tend to think that, right? Like if you have somebody who's, who's, who's very devoted to getting closer to Hashem and that's the most important thing to their life and they're always working on it, you'd think, well, that person couldn't really enjoy X, Y, or Z, which are so you know, ungodly and unholy and un... And the answer to that is actually no. Desire for closeness to Hashem and Hashem being important to you does no way correlates to how much you enjoy the actual sin. You could hate, you could hate the sin and can hate your Yitzhahara, but you're, what you're hating is its effect, its consequence. There, and a tzaddik is a very different thing. So it's like, it's not more or less, it's a totally different thing. And so you can have someone who's a very, you know, great chassid, you know, a paragon of virtue and, and, and service of Hashem. And in Chabad culture, like, you know, in the appropriate setting, be very honest that they, they, they can feel the, 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 the draw to the most, you know, you know, lowly kinds of sins in the world. And there's really no difference between them and the worst sinner in that respect. The worst sinner acts on it. They don't act on it. But they also feel the appeal. They also feel the, 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 the draw to it because sinning is pleasurable. And it will stay pleasurable until you experience the bliss of Ganeda. It can become unpleasurable only in the kind of broader sense that the cost is so high that you hate the cost that it has to pay, it ruins it for you. That could happen. Mm, that's not inherent. But that's not inherent. That's, that, that requires, you know... You're like conditioned. Yeah. You, have to, you have to work on that and you have to maintain that. That's not, an, that's not a state of being that you just automatically you have. things that aim for, though? Yeah. It's a sign of how important it is to be, how much you're making Hashem being, clo being close to Hashem more important to you. Right? It, it, you know, it, something, you know, something can be funny, 
But the more it bothers you who it hurts, the less funny it becomes. But it's not really it stopped being funny. You just can't find it funny anymore. But again, it's not because it's not funny. Because you take that same thing and you take it out of that context, it's still funny, right? You don't... don't we all want to be around people though who can admit that it's funny? Even if they don't find it funny? Like, like the relatability is, let's say, lost there. You... No. You like the rabbi. Like, we all like the rabbi who's like, yeah, I liked eating whatever when I was not religious, blah, blah, blah. So, so I think... I think to be honest, I think, I think what, we, what we like is honesty, not the relatability. Someone who really doesn't like it. Like, like let's say you have a, I'll give you, not a tzad, let's just take something a little more relatable. Because I think this is a, okay. Let's say, for instance, um, let's use the following example. Let's say somebody has, there's a bunch of people, and they have, um, say, a substance abuse problem. And they've worked on it, and things have gotten better, and they're in a good place, yeah? Mm-hmm. And they're sitting with someone who's never had a substitute problem. They never, they never thought that, like, the idea of messing up your life by sticking chemicals into yourself to ruin your, your decision-making, your ability to experience things, your sense of autonomy, like, just does not remotely appeal to them. Never has. All right? But that person is able to see, we'll use those words, see the humanity in, in what these people have gone through, even though, right, even they, they, he see, he's able to see the difficulty, see the triumph, see, right? Yeah, really so. See how someone can end up there. You see how someone ended up there, right? Even though to him, it just, like, he could never see, he, like, it doesn't speak to him at all, but he, he, he doesn't need to say, oh, I also, that's not it. There, there's, but the fact that a person can, 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 Right, the, the person, their, their, it's a cheap word, their soul comes out. The sense of they're a living person, they're connecting to you as a living person. They're not hiding, not putting on a pretense. So now you have the rabbi, right, who's not a tzaddik. So he does like to sin because everybody likes to sin. And now he puts on airs as if he's above sinning. That's very off-putting. Right. He doesn't even have to go into what sins he does or doesn't like to do. That's not the point. But like, where, where, where is this? Where is this? Where is this veneer of as if you've tasted the divine bliss and no longer find sinful things appealing on any level? It's just like that's off-putting. Um, and that's by the way, when you encounter a real tzaddik, it's not off-putting because the real tzaddik doesn't. They see things from a tzaddik point of view, meaning they see the godliness and everything. So they see the godliness and struggle. They see the godliness and shuva. They see the unbreakableness of godliness even in sin, how sin can never fully separate. They see that in the other person. So it's not off-putting to be. It's only off-putting to be by someone who's not a tzaddik and is projecting themselves or even worse, believes themselves to be that way. Good? Yeah, thank you. Okay. So again, can somebody who is not a tzaddik hate ungodliness? Yes. yes. But when they hate ungodliness, what about it are they hating? The cost. Right, the cost. How it stands in their way, right? In other words, if I wanted to use a word, I would say they find, they find ungodliness frustrating. I think that's the most precise word. Frustrating is a feeling, right? It used to refer to um, 
It used to refer to an event. So if you're trying to do something and something is stopping you, that thing is frustrating you. It is preventing you from going forward. And the feeling you have when that occurs, we now call frustration. And that's, that's how the non-sadic feels about his Yetzirah, about the, the temptations in the world, about the ungodliness that he encounters. It gets in his way and he finds that frustrating. And you can develop some very deep resentments over that. But what makes it so frustrating is that, it's, is, is that as they say, it's geschmack, it feels good. The tzaddik finds it repulsive and despicable just in and of itself. And that's because they're having a different experience than, than the non-tzaddik. So now the question is, how does that come about? How do you get that, that special experience? How do you get that, that was avabatanugam, that love of experiencing the bliss of the divine? You can't like just, you know, work really hard to get it. So, in the text... Why would, why would people be like, pained over the fact that they enjoy evil if they know that's like, not even possible for them to not? Are people rational that they only are pained over some things that they have, can solve? No, right? No. Okay, so that's it. This goes back to the thing we discussed in the previous class, right? When you make Judaism into kind of this artificial game, then why be upset about, about the fact that you can't win at this part of the game? Just play the part that you can win. But if it's not a game, right? If it's really something that matters to you, right? You know, somebody... You know, I'll give you an example. Somebody marriage falls apart and they really want the marriage to continue and their spouse is not interested and you know the, the reality of that situation is that legalities aside you can't really have a marriage if one spouse wants out right and is there anything that they can do really to change the situation can you control another person's well since you might as well just like not care about it okay move on in life right? but that's not how people work right If being close to Hashem really matters to you and you know that like actually seeing Hashem face to face, having a sense of, what, of who and what he really is all about is something that you don't get, probably will bother you. Which is why the Alter Ben, not the now, later chapters, goes into like how is a person supposed to deal with the fact that they may never be a topic. That's not this chapter. But again, if, if I'm only doing it because it's like, in the book it says to do it, then the book says I can't achieve it, so I'm okay, so I want to want to work on it. But if it really, I mean, people, people want to, someone who, someone, who, someone who really cares about being with someone else and then they can't be with them, they can't be close to them, it's really going to bother them. Because there's also the side of like being... Like, like knowing your place and knowing where you That's are. true, but that, that you, you put it very accurately. There's also the side. That, and that, in a certain sense, comes secondarily. It's a way to help deal with something which is very frustrating, it is very unpleasant. Okay. All right. Um, all right. 62. The fifth line, end of the line. And. And not every man contained the state... For this is the nature of a gracious reward. As is written, I will make your priestly office a rewarding service. 
as explained elsewhere, okay? So the idea is that achieving this kind of experience, it's a reward, okay? Now, this idea of a reward, um, in the Hebrew it says it's a matana, it's a gift also. The verse, is, is the, the verse quoted here, rewarding service, literally is a vaidus matana, a service that is a gift. Our sages say that there's an important rule, um, which is that nobody gives gifts away for free. Right? Nobody sins unless they get something out of it. Nobody gives gifts unless... Or they already got something out of it. Like as a return for a favor or something? Or the fact that um, you have been a good friend to somebody and because that's meaningful to them in response to that they give you a gift. Right? There is a difference between a gift and payment, right? There's a difference. We'll talk about that in a second what that difference is. But gifts are not just something that's just handed out freely. Okay, this actually is important for ramifications. Um, there are things you're not allowed to derive benefit from. In halacha, Jewish law. What's an example of something you're not allowed to derive benefit from? Meat and milk, correct. If meat and milk are cooked together, so the whole question of what counts as cooked together, but let's just take the extreme example like they were actually pot, milk, meat, cooked together, you cannot benefit from that. Can you give it away as a gift? Why not? Because no one gives a gift without... Because, right. Giving a gift is a way of... They have a fancy word for this in sociology. It is a way of solidifying your social capital. That's... Really? In other words, if you give a gift, you are either giving the gift... Well, either giving the gift takes the, so, takes the connection you have and fortifies it or helps build a new connection, right? You gain reputation. You gain status. You gain approval, right? Or it takes feelings of goodwill and it, and it, and it shows that you've, you've acknowledged them and the other person feels therefore validated, right? It, it does something on the sociological level, right? A gift is not compensated monetarily, right? You don't get, I'm giving you a gift and you pay me for it. That's not a gift, right? But if the prohibition is benefiting, I am in fact benefiting. And so I'm not allowed to benefit from that. I can't give it as a gift. Okay. Um, it makes sense? Are you allowed to leave it somewhere so that someone can get it? Or you have to throw it away? So, things that are forbidden from benefiting into two categories, I don't want to go into this longer discussion. There are things that have to be buried and things that have to be burned. Some things it's sufficient to simply dispose of them in a way that they're not accessible, burial. And some things you have to burn them. There's actually a debate whether you can burn the things that have to be buried or it's each one is particular. Um, it's, a, it's a longer discussion. I don't want to go into it right now. Um, but no, you're not just allowed to like um, leave out where someone wants to see what Right, you're supposed to. It wouldn't be a gift, but you're still allowed to. Right, right. Um, the, 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 there's interesting questions like is that rabbinic? Is that biblical? All, all these things get into the, in, into the details, right? If you throw it away, and what if someone will dig the trash and get it? Okay, okay. so. Does Hashem just go around handing this bliss? This, no. Is it a reward in the strict sense of a reward? No, it can't be a reward in the strict sense of a reward because a reward is something that you deserve. And this is the difference between a gift and, and, and um, 
compensation, payment, or purchasing. Okay? Let's start with a simple thing. If I do work for you, you owe me compensation. Right? And if you don't give it to me, then what? I will demand it. And if you still don't give it to me, then what? <laughs> you get the law involved, right? And I will use the law to force you to meet your obligations, right? Make sense? Okay. If someone purchases something and then they don't pay for it, same thing, right? Okay. Um, or conversely, you purchased it and the seller doesn't deliver it. Now, uh, th th because you can, you can purchase something without actually yet taking possession of it. That that could be done. Right? So the idea here is that what do you mean? That there is the, that there is an, an exchange. I, you know, in exchange for this, you have to do that, right? Okay. If we serve Hashem properly, are we entitled to a reward? No. Yes. Yes. I just want you to know something. When when people say that. It makes me embarrassed to be a lavatory. <laughs> it's like a foundational thing of Judaism. Like, it's like, do we believe in the Exodus? No. Like, what do you mean? Like, no. Like, that's Judaism. Reward, punishment, basic Judaism, one-on-one. Should we make it the most important thing in our life? Da -da 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 -da. If you serve Hashem properly, are you entitled to reward? Yes. Absolutely. Just because Hashem gives it doesn't mean you deserve it. You deserve it because that's what makes it a reward. But also, aren't you entitled to something if someone promises? So yeah, Hashem it's promised all... us a reward, then we're entitled to it, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> but like, it's not like yeah. we're. But it's not, that, it's not like we're deserving of it. It's no, so 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 to be so to be to be. To be fair, to be fair, we, one of the times that we do run into a bit of an issue is that when we use words from one language to another language, we run into a problem. When was the last time you used reward out of the word reward outside of religious context? Never, almost. Well, I almost. Know, but I what is the almost? What is the almost? What? Like positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement with children, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. See, the thing is, the Hebrew word, what's the, what's the Hebrew word for reward? Schar. Okay, what's schar? Payment. Schar is payment. <laughs> I do work, you have to pay me. That's how that works. You understand? Like, like it, 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 it's a lot more serious, right? I, right, get something every month, right, which says, my schar, literally, my Payment. <laughs> the payment that I get for the work that I do, right? You are right, right? And if and if that doesn't show up at the right time of the month, right? Men. You ask, they demand, then you get a lawyer, right? <laughs> so there is this there is this misleading thing. I don't think, by the way, the word reward ha always had this connotation in English. This might make sense. I could be totally wrong about this. Uh, oh, reward is something you do for like positive reinforcement for children. Simply because it seems to be the word that's used always in all the literature when they speak about like divine justice, they speak about reward and punishment. It's probably way back in the when reward probably carried more the connotation of the Hebrew word schar. But words morph in their meaning. Fine. Schar means what? Payment, compensation that you deserve for what you've done. And by the way, what is it? Now, punishment, by the way, we use punishment not just when we're talking about these little kids and trying to get them to, to do their homework. We talk about punishment, even like real adult serious things. Like, you did something really wrong, not you. Someone did something really wrong, right? They deserve to be 
right? Yeah. And if they're not getting punished, people are like, where's the punishment? They deserve it. Okay. 13 principles of faith according to Rambam. Word and punishment makes them on the list. Okay? There's not a single Jewish thinker. Right? In fact, one of the lists of the fundamental heresies of Judaism, the Mishnah says, is someone who says that there is no... Word and punishment. Good. So if you do a mitzvah, you're entitled to a reward. Yes. Okay. If you, serve, if you, if you sin... God forbid. Are you, are you deserving of punishment? Yes. Very good. Okay. God is forgiving, but that, that's another thing. Okay. So now, if I serve Hashem properly, I'm going to get a reward. Zakam not a tzaddik. No. I work with the spirit of folly. Is not me, because like I'm, you know my issues. But let's say I really work hard and I do what I'm supposed to do and I, I overcome and I get rid of my spirit of folly and I, and I get in touch with the depths of my soul and I know what's really important and I live my life and I don't sin and I pursue mitzvahs and obviously so the whole thing, right? I deserve a reward. Give you the divine bliss. Ah, right. It's similar to a reward, right? But it's not a reward because if it was actually a reward, you could Expect it. You'd be entitled to it. It is a... If you serve Hashem properly, right, He may give you a gift. But if it's a gift, if you, is He just hand, them around, hand it out arbitrarily for random for free? No. So in other words, like this. You don't just one day wake up and poof, Hashem decided, I'm in a good mood. You're a tzaddik. It's also not you work really hard and now you're entitled to, to get the special experience of divine bliss like an aid and they become a tzaddik. What is it? It's a, it's a gift. You serve Hashem in such a way that Hashem feels like giving you a... Are there people who are close to you? And because they're close to you, you feel like giving them gifts? Mm-hmm. And there are other people who are like, why didn't you give me a gift? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, you're not so close to me. So, oh, and if I was close to you, then you give me a gift? Like, maybe, maybe not. Like, no guarantees, right? So, so it's not exactly, like, sorry, it's not, it's not exactly um, the word I'm looking for. Not arbitrary, whatever. Like, willy-nilly. Um, it's not willy-nilly, correct. That is, that is the correct philosophical term. I know, because I was once reading an actual published philosophical work from a professor of philosophy, and he used the term willy-nilly several times. So, therefore, it is an official philosophical term. Yes. Right? So it's not exactly... <laughs> I would go with willy-nilly. It's good. I like it. But it's also not like an exact science. Correct. Right. It's not like... It's an interesting space, right? It's not something you are entitled to, but it's not something that you just get willy-nilly. Okay. Right? It's something that you can bring yourself to a point where it's open for discussion, but in the end, Hashem has to decide that He wants to give it to you. And someone who has this is a tzaddik. And, and, and well, the, the, being a tzaddik is having that bliss. Now, what are you entitled to? While we're on the topic of being entitled. What do you mean? If you serve Hashem, what are you entitled to? Reward. Okay. Question, though. Didn't you say... One second. Oh. When do you get the reward? You don't know. Do no. It's a debate. What? No. Depends on the thing. Well, we're in time, in the context of time. When do you get the reward that you're entitled to? 
Did we learn this? When you do this? No. After. After. After what? After what? After you get rid of your Yitzhahara or something. <laughs> a, a very specific something. A very fleshy, bony kind of something. Complications aside, right? in other words, like this: if you serve Hashem, if you serve Hashem, you will be rewarded, and you'll be rewarded according to your service of Hashem. And there's quite complex things, um, so I don't want to go into the whole thing. But but that takes place after a person dies. So just for example, okay, um, if you serve Hashem with higher, loftier motivations, you go to a higher level of Gan Eden. If you serve Hashem with lower levels of motivate, with lower levels. Of, of the right, not the right best motivations, you go to a lower level of Ghanaian. I don't want to go into the complications right now, but yes, like once you, once a person dies, they'll be rewarded. By the way, they will also be, for instance, if the person has sinned, they will suffer. How much will they suffer? Proportional to the gravity of the sin. That's, the the alchemist is like, no, there's no issues with that. Right? But that's what you, that's actual reward and punishment. Being a tzaddik is not really reward and punishment. Because if it was reward and punishment, you could just deserve it. Right? It's a. So the person has to become, serve Hashem to be not deserving of the gift, but it, but it be appropriate to receive that gift. And then I should decide to give it to them. Yeah. Can you say that it's Adik's born that way? So I never said it's Adik is born that way. Really? I am pretty sure I never said it's Adik's born that way. I thought that it was something that's because here it sounds like they can work towards a Adik position. Mm-hmm. But does anyone else remember us learning that like in that? a different class that Adik souls? Come We're gonna down. get to that. No, but they like come down to. Bodies, and so you're born with the we're gonna get yeah we're gonna get to that so I'll, I'll, I'll address this now just very briefly because that's what we're gonna get to later there are two kinds of tzaddikim okay there's a tzaddik we talk about in Tanya which is called was called the regular tzaddik okay this is regular this is the regular tzaddik okay the regular tzaddik is somebody who receives a gift from Hashem of a state of divine bliss, experiencing me'en ilam haba, and they're, they're living in the afterlife sometime in this world, and, and we can discuss like what needs to happen in order for them to achieve that. And, as we're going to learn, not everybody is capable of getting there. In other words, not everybody is capable of being the kind of person who can receive this gift. Every tzaddik... What makes a person a tzaddik is that he has this love? Yes, this right. Type of this, love. Yeah, this type of love. That's what makes him a tzaddik. However, you ha- because it's a gift, your gifts are not handed out willy-nilly, you have to be the kind of person who Fisham feels it's appropriate to give him that gift. Is everybody capable of being in that state where appro- Fisham feels appropriate to give him this gift? No. So, in, so if you want to put it very simply, certain people are born with the potential to be a tzaddik. This is complicated because everyone has an obligation to try to become a tzaddik, and Alter is going to deal with that in this chapter. There is another kind of tzaddik, what are called tzaddikim gedoylim, great tzaddikim. They are not normal. The Alter doesn't really talk about them in Tanya. 
later on in a certain place he mentions them briefly and he says, but this is, this is mystical stuff. We're not going to worry too much about it. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. These are people like Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu's neshama comes into the world, comes into his body, boom, tzaddik. No effort on his part. No working on his part, no growth on his part. Okay. That's a totally different thing altogether. Now, I'm oversimplifying it, but the reason why I'm oversimplifying it is because there, are, there is a kind of a soul where the sense of Hashem is so, in, so ingrained and so vivid, the soul cannot lose that, that sense of Hashem. So all that happens when that soul enters the animal soul in the body is that it's like, you know, it's like an ant and, a, and, and, and uh, one of those things that like does the pavement. Just like, the soul just like smashes, just squats, splats everything out of the way. It's, there's just a tremendous amount of intensity. Like it says by Moshe, Moshe was born, the house was filled with light, the divine presence was there. Some souls, their sense of Hashem is so radically beyond how normal souls work that they literally cannot become clothed in the physicality of things. They just kind of overshadow the physicality of the body. They feel overshadow the physicality of the, the animalistic nature of the animal soul and everything is completely subdued and transformed and it's a whole different thing. These are very rare souls. Very, very rare. Okay. So yes, some people are born tzaddikim. When the Alter Rebbe and Tanya talks about being a tzaddik, he's, not, he's talking about a growth process that people can engage in and try to understand what it is and how not everyone's able to do it and yet somehow we're also obligated to try and engage in it somehow. Would the Alter Rebbe have considered himself a tzaddik? Or do others, like do we when we read the Tanya? Um... I'm uncomfortable answering the question, not because I don't have an answer, because I often feel that like questions like this become, fall into like a little bit of a tribalism thing. Like, oh, my tzaddik is a real tzaddik. My tzaddik. And I don't, like, I miss tribal as the next person, you know, but I don't, I don't think that that's really beneficial, right? For concept, like, to conceptualize what tzaddik is, right, right. No. So I'm going to answer you, but I wanted to mention that caveat, that I don't, like, if there's a fob question of who says or how do we, like, I don't want to go there, because at that point it's, I, I, I have found that those conversations are not productive kinds of conversations. The kind of soul one needs to have to be a Rebbe, according to the Chabad tradition, is the kind of soul that functions like Moshe Rabbeinu's soul. That's what the texts say. Which therefore means either someone who's purporting to be a Rebbe in the Chabad tradition is either a charlatan or is a tzaddik of the highest order. One of the two, like the, right. that. That's just kind of the doctrine. Did now, just be an awesome Benoni with like... no, no. And there's explanations of what what the role of a Rebbe is and how a Rebbe's soul functions and what he does. And, and 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 in explaining that, the key idea is, and I'll try to address it later on, is basically there are an act, they are a continuation of the soul of Moshe's soul. So it's is that true for all Hasidic groups or just? So in the Chabad tradition, this is true of all of the, say, original Hasidic rabbis and anyone who follows in that mold. Okay, so the idea would be like this. There's the Baal Shem Tov. 
there were people who the Baal Shem Tov, I'll use this word, although I don't think it's the best word, but we'll use it anyway because I didn't care as a point across, trained to be Baal Shem Tovs. Okay. They, they, when the Baal Shem Tov passed away, the leader of that group was named the Magad of Mizrich. He also trained people to be Baal Shem Tovs. We call these Baal Shem Tovs rabbis, right? Okay. Um, some communities, the title Rebbe became um, a communal position. Ideally associated with someone who's very God-fearing and everything else. But not necessarily, is there, is there, is it, are they really making claim that they are really like the Baal Shem Tov? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and, and sometimes there's a controversy about this. So for instance, there was a, there was a, the, the, the Magad of Mizritchen had a grandson named Rusol Ruzhner. Rusol Ruzhner was a tzaddik of the highest order. Um, if everyone thinks that Chabad is a little bit controversial and like being tzaddik-centric, the Ruzhner was like <laughs> the extreme. Um, and the, the Ruzhner Rebbe had a lot of sons and many of them succeeded and became Rebbes. And one of the controversies that ensued was that many other people, including some other tzaddikim, felt that his sons are very holy people, they're very righteous, they even made a tzaddik on the levels we're talking here, but they're not the Ruzhner. And therefore they shouldn't conduct themselves with the same degree of a cult of personality that the Ruzhner conducted himself with. Um, and there was discussion, debates about these types of things. In the Chabad tradition, there's an idea that for a Rebbe to succeed as being Rebbe, he must be at least as great as the previous Rebbe. Otherwise, then there's no point. We don't, we don't appoint a Rebbe for having someone fill the communal role. So if somebody can plausibly be seen as genuinely filling up that space and more so, then fine. But otherwise... Isn't it automatically a little lower? A simple answer is that the lower the generation, the greater the light you need. Hmm. That's the simple answer. I, I want to be careful because you start getting to measuring who's greater, who's lower. It, it, start, it, it gets very, can get very tribal in this. The idea being is that the Chabad tradition is that a Rebbe, a, a, whatever Rebbe's role is, Dr. Rick gets into that, he touched in a little in chapter 2, he talks a lot later in chapter 42. That role can only be fulfilled by some, some, someone whose neshama is of the order of magnitude of Moshe, or in really, in some sense, is an aspect of Moshe's soul. Mm-hmm. And, and you could have multiple of those. Right, yeah, that's, that's not the same thing. There's another idea there's that Chabad... There's like one, there's like the, the one soul, but that's not... When you say a, a, like a tzaddik of the highest order, you mean like, a, a, like where there are multiple... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Like there's, there's, there's different... Like in one category. That, that different groups can have their own Rebbe who is a tzaddik of the highest order. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. At the same time. Yeah, okay. yeah, no, the, the, right. The, on this particular issue, the, 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 the term here is the term, the technical term is what's called the Neshama Vatsilos, a soul from the world of Vatsilos, mm-hmm. which doesn't go through the normal. Now, within that, there's different levels, within that, there's different levels and things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. In the Chabad tradition, since the role of a Rebbe is to do the official Rebbe job thing, whatever that is, and the prerequisite to that is having that kind of a soul, like you, you can't make claim to that without possibly having that soul. There are other communities. So I'll give you a, a mention example, okay? The, there's a community called, there's a Hasidic group called um, Pinsk Karlin. There's Karlin, Karlin Split, so one is called Karlin Stone, one is called Pinsk Karlin. The Pinsk Karliner Rebbe is a friend of a friend of mine. 
friend of a friend of mine. How did he become a friend of a friend of mine? The Pinskar Lina Rebbe felt like he doesn't really understand Chassidus. And my friend is, became, he, he didn't grow up Lubavitch, but he, he became a Lubavitcher. And he is a, a genius and he's very, he's a very knowledgeable person. And the Pinskar Lina said, you mind like making a chavrusa with me a few times a week to teach me Chassidus? This is after he's Rebbe. Now, I think someone like that clearly has an understanding that he's not, you know, the Baal Shem Tov or a Baal Shem Tov-like person. Does, is he a God-fearing person? Presumably. I mean, does, does, does he bane any? Possibly. I don't know. I don't, I don't know him personally. Does he feel a tremendous sense of responsibility of continuing leading his community in the tradition and, 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 and the, the guidance that's, you know, the Karlin approach to things? Sure, he does. Does that give him, can he therefore be called a Rebbe? I mean, depending on what you mean by the title, but sure. And many times what people mean by Rebbe's and nowadays, they mean that. They mean someone who's very God-fearing, maybe is occasioned by some divine inspiration from time to time, um, who people look up to and is guiding them and maybe have what's called schos avis, the merit of their ancestors, helping them. But that's not the same thing as like, you are the Baal you, you are functioning the Baal Shem Tov. You're functioning like, 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 um, and so in the Chabad tradition, for someone to be a Rebbe, they have to plausibly be filling up the space of what the previous Rebbe was doing. Otherwise, we just don't appoint a new one. Um, what was the term you used for a fake, like a phony? When you said... Uh, charlatan. For instance, when the, when, the fourth, when the fourth Chabad Rebbe passed away, there was a bit of an issue because there were, there were three sons. The oldest son didn't want to be Rebbe. His name was Reb Zalman Aaron. The middle one didn't want to be Rebbe. He was known as Shalom Dovber. And the youngest one didn't want to be Rebbe. He was known as Nachmedel. Um, but the older two, like, they could both plausibly be. And eventually, like, not even one of be, but eventually, over time, the middle one, um, known as Rebbe Rashab, the acronym of his name, pictures, pictures, but over there, bottom left, he became the Rebbe. And so one time, uh, someone asked his, his older brother, is he really, is he really a Rebbe? No, he wasn't asking if he's a God-fearing person. He wasn't asking if he's like, he was asking, he's like, is he really like as great as your father and your grandfather? Is he really that person? He's talking about his younger brother. Interestingly, the, 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 the older brother became a chassid of the younger, of the younger brother, which is itself a fascinating thing. And so he said, there are many things in life, there's a spectrum such as rich and poor. Someone is richer, someone is poor, but you could be poor, you could be richer. There's certain things you either are or you're not. There's no middle ground. A Rebbe, this, this notion of Rebbe, you either are or you're not. I said, my brother's not a liar. He's not a fake. So if he's, if he's, if he's doing the role, it's because he really is that. So does every community, like if you were to go and ask, like say a community of Satmir, would they describe their, there's two Satmars now, would they describe, would you ask the Satmars, do you think that your Rebbe is a Bashemtov kind of person, a Moshe Rebbeinu kind of person? I don't think that that's how they think of it. So you have a problem where you start using the same word to mean slightly different things and then you run into confusion. Um, and then you add the tribalism and then it all gets messy. Okay. But here we're talking about, so to speak, the normal tzaddik, the tzaddik who has to achieve a certain state of divine bliss, which is a gift, right? And how does that, who can achieve that? How is that achieved? And if it's not accessible to all of us, then why are we all commanded to try and work on it? 
right? The special kind of tzaddik where just the mere fact that the soul enters into the body and everything is just steamrolled over, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different order of thing, which ultimately doesn't really discuss in time. It's not really relevant to understanding. Because ultimately there's a guide for us to understand the paths of service Hashem in front of us rather than just going and categorizing people. Um, you know, the, 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 I have told you a story about the mayor Pamashan when he was a child and he came home crying. Mayor Pamashan, he, was a, he became a Rebbe, but his father was also a Rebbe. I think it's a disciple of Hashem, if I remember correctly. He came home crying, his father said, What happened? He's, I'll make the story short. short. And then the, 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 the teacher hit me, gave me a patch. Day, well, back in the day that you did as a student is being a little bit disruptive you give them a slap um, I'm not advocating that I'm just saying that's what they did um, I'm not saying it's actually wrong I'm just, that, that's, that's, what, that's the way it was um, and the he says well what did you he says I was disturbing class well what happened we learned the halacha if you don't know what day is Shabbos that you um you count six days and then you keep the seventh day of Shabbos. I says, what's the problem? He says, how can you not know what day Shabbos is? It's a different sky, it's a different trees, the, the birds sound different. Everything is different because it's Shabbos. Now, I guarantee you, there's no physical difference in like the physicality of the world on Shabbos. Right? Quieter streets. Well, That's well, only here. In Jewish yeah. So what is he sensing? Godliness is different on Shabbos, right? So like, and he's a child, right? You know. Um, Yeah, it's a whole, that's not something you, it's not, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. It's a whole different thing. I'll just tell you, um, one time, um, the the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, was sitting at the dining room table, eating, there was a few sitting around, just like a regular weekday meal. And he sighed to himself, he says, nowadays there's no more neshamas of atzils, there's no more of these Moshe Rabbeinu-like souls in the world. Which is obviously a problem, as I just mentioned, because like, being a Rebbe kind of requires you to be one. So the chassidim are a little uncomfortable with that kind of statement. And so one of them, um, his name was Yaakov Landau, later became the chief rabbi of B'nai Brak, his grandson's currently the rabbi of B'nai Brak. So he, he with kind of some trepidation, but a little bit of chutzpah says, Rebbe, there's still neshamas from Atzilus. And so the, the Rebbe Shab side and says, true, but neshamas of Atzilus have different levels. The point of the story being like, if you're a neshama of Atzilus, then you analyze things from your perspective. And so you can like, it's like my kids, I remember my kids once asked me like, where are the poor people? We give tzedakah, where are the poor people? Because in their mind, the storybook, so it's a poor person. A poor person is a person on the street with no tattered clothes and they don't know what to eat. A poor person is what is an apartment. They go to the grocery store, right? And they can't, they're juggling and they can barely pay their bills and like they take things out of the, out of, out of the, out of the cart because they can't afford. Like that's a poor person, right? It's not the poor person of the shtetl, but it's still a poor person, but it's a poor person in modern society, right? Okay. So if you're in a Shema Vatsila, it's like you evaluate everything from your point of view and you can feel like, wow, this is or this or not. And, and the Yaakov Lad was like, you know, that may be true from your perspective, from our perspective. Like, and he's like, yes, both perspectives are valid. This. Anyway, the Yerev the, the Shab apparently was pleased with that because it was the only time he ever asked Yaakov Lando to leave the benching. Mm-hmm. So, 
It must have. So yeah, these things they they require a little bit of. I feel like I'm a tape recorder. They require a bit of maturity to, you know, you can easily fall into like who's better or who's higher or tribalism and like you miss the point. Okay, but we're, tomorrow we're going to go back and we're going to focus on the regular tzaddikim who, who get this reward. What does it mean to, what does it mean to be not again? You don't deserve, it's a gift. You don't deserve a gift but to be that the gift is appropriate. Right? And if we can't achieve that then why are we told to try and be a tzaddik? That's going to be kind of the rest of the chapter. Good? Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Is Ahab the same as That is a very good question. And the answer is it depends. Sometimes they're used interchangeably and sometimes they are not. Sometimes it's obvious that they're not being used interchangeably. Sometimes it's obvious they are being used interchangeably. And sometimes it's a matter of debate amongst different commentators and different sections of Tanya or Chassidus. It's a huge, complicated issue. Is that similar to like spirit of folly versus Yitzhahara? Sometimes it's... Right, right. And you're going to find that a lot. is Because re- remember, the Torah is written in language. Language is not a code. And so the same phrase can sometimes be used more precisely, sometimes more generally, sometimes as a synonym, right? Um, the, 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 the... Like, later on... Yeah, and so sometimes from context it's pretty clear, and sometimes from context it's like really subject to, to, to debate. Um, later on, he mentions. In chapter 40, in chapter 40, um, in chapter 43, he mentions again Avaraba great love and the description there makes it sound like Avabatanugim and there the complicated things it sounds like something a baby can achieve so you have to differentiate this kind of Avabatanugim from that kind of, it becomes very complicated someone told me and I don't know I don't know I heard this like they, something, someone says it, like, like they just mentioned something and then you like wish you'd go back like get more information someone mentioned to me once parenthetically that he once came across a book of some chassid from I don't know a generation or two ago we wrote a commentary on Tanya of analyzing every single type of love mentioned in Tanya and came to the conclusion there's 20, I think he said 22 different kinds of love mentioned in Tanya. That if you read all the descriptions and try to figure out is this exactly the same thing or we're talking about two different things, there's 22 distinct different ones. A, I don't know who this person, with this book is, I've never, like, since that person mentioned me, I don't, I don't, never heard about it again and I don't remember that I have a sure 22, but it's definitely a thing that you can, as you start going into it, it becomes a huge question like, is this the same thing? Is this not the same thing? One of the things that I was debating with myself and teaching this was to, should I go into all that complexity or not? And I decided I'm just going to leave with what it says here in this chapter. Um, so even though what I'm saying is going to be an overgeneralization, it's nonetheless true. And the more you learn, then you'll have to adjust things. Like there is, like I mentioned just now, I didn't intend to bring up your that there is a kind of Ava Batanugim that is accessible to a Bainini and yet doesn't actually make them into a Tzaddik. So what's the difference between those two kinds of things and things like that? We're not going to go into it. We're just going to deal with the subject matter that he's dealing with here in the chapter. But you are, you are very perceptive in the question of is it the same or is it different? So then why do you think, I mean, honestly, I just can't really tell exactly what the why not just make up new words if you're talking about a different concept? Like, I'm sure there are other ways of saying 
I could give you mystical answers, but I'm going to give you a non-mystical answer because I think, I think when we're learning, this is the most important answer. Nobody does that, ever. Every attempt of human beings to make language be rigorously precise fails. Now, you can ask why that is. You can ask a linguist why that is, but try it. Try to make sure that for every distinct concept, you use a separate word and be very, very precise. What ends up happening is one of two things. Either it becomes incredibly complicated and no one can follow, or you... Um, or the other thing, or the other thing is that you are using the same word for two things without even realizing it, because you're relating to some similar aspect of them, and then someone else picks up on the fact that they're different. Which is why, since people have been using language, we have debates about semantics. And given the fact that Torah is Torah and language, and not a computer code for a computer. And I, I, again, there's mystical reasons. There, there are interesting mystical reasons. And, 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 and I don't want like, to go into it, but I, I really think it's important when learning to remember, because people sometimes turn it into like decoding. And when they do that, imagine, imagine you're reading somebody else's writing or you're listening to someone talk and you start trying to decode what they're saying. It doesn't work. Like, 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 there's a group of people who do that. They're called lawyers. Lawyers try to say things in very, very precise words. So there's no way to misinterpret what they say. Have you ever read like legalese? It's incomprehensible, right? You know, professionals can develop a jargon in a kind of natural way because they see a distinction that is really significant. So they just develop different words for it. But someone doesn't see that difference. Like, why do you have these two different words? There's a, there's a kind of naturalness and generosity that needs to be in language. We use context to understand language so much more than we often realize. And so I think when we're learning, we should realize that and, and not get hung up on that as, as just a practical matter. In addition, there's mystical reasons why the altar would use one thing here and one thing there.